So what I'd like to reflect on in the talk this evening is the wisdom of boredom. And I'd like to begin by sharing with you something I came across in that great font of wisdom called Time Magazine. It begins by saying, clearly people can relate. New York City's Central Park Zoo was deluged with calls from as far away as Brazil and Japan last week. After word got round about Gus, the neurotic polar bear. Even Letterman cracked wise about the Ursine nutcase, whose repetitive backstroke routine prompted the zoo to dole out $25,000 for an animal shrink. When he swims, he gets into a pattern of going back and forth, and he can do that for a couple of hours at a time, says a concerned zoo spokesperson of the 700-pound eight-year-old bear. The dog's trying to distract, the, distract Gus from his boredom, induced behavior, by livening up his days with toys, food, and extra human interaction. Hey, it works for us. Now, apparently, according to all reports, our culture is suffering from an epidemic of boredom. In fact, boredom is being blamed for almost everything, from depression to stress to violence to addiction, um, overspending, <laughs> car accidents, suicides are all being blamed upon boredom. And it's said in some of these studies that countless people are living in an ongoing state of reaction to boredom. Now, I'm sure that today some of you have had a little taste of this state called boredom. And if you haven't yet had that because you were too sleepy or... <laughs> To know it, I can almost assure you that at some point in this retreat, you will indeed have a taste of this state called boredom. And it's familiar to us, it's all, isn't it, this state? And I think we know in our lives, it is actually one of the most difficult states of mind to be with. And culturally, I do also think that boredom is seen as something as a taboo. It's a kind of failure of our life. And it is a state of mind that drives so much behavior. In truth, we do a lot of running from boredom. And in truth, this, the discomfort of this state we call boredom can generate so much of the restless and agitated behavior and choices we make in our life. Seeing as it is so kind of prevalent, I think we, I don't feel that we can afford to not really understand it. Perhaps there is a deeper and significant and transforming shift we can make in ourselves. And I do admit that this is a bit of a stretch. A 
shift from seeing boredom as a problem to be solved to seeing boredom as a potentially fertile ground of understanding. Now, there may indeed be something essentially and fundamentally important about us, about our mind, about who we believe ourselves to be, that perhaps only boredom is going to teach us. First of all, I think it's useful to acknowledge that even the word boredom didn't even enter the English language until well into the 18th century. So it's a relatively new word. It's even possibly a relatively new experience. If you read some of the, or many of the kind of great spiritual texts, you know, from the Buddhist discourses to the Bible to the Koran to, you know, many of these great texts, you see there's a recognition of a lot of timeless emotions, you know, greed, anger, jealousy. It seems has been around a long time, as long as human beings have been around. But not boredom. Boredom, it seems, evolved sometime in the 18th century, basically out of excess, and particularly an excess of time. And prior to that time, people by necessity, and I might mention, of course, as we all know, that this is true of much of the world today. Prior to that time, people were involved by necessity in just immersing themselves in the daily tasks of, survi of survival. So boredom in that situation is not an issue. And of course it's true in so much of our world today that if from the moment you woke up in the morning till you went to bed at night, if you were facing the urgent questions of how to feed and clothe yourself and those you cared about, how to protect yourself and those you love, Boredom as a state is hardly something that's going to occupy your attention. But sometime in the late 18th century, there began to emerge this group of people, and of course a lot of this group of people is basically generated by wealth, who could relax a little. And then they could say in this somewhat kind of supercilious kind of way, you know, flapping their hands, oh, it's so boring. It's so boring. And this was considered to be a kind of a life success statement. <laughs> you know, it's so boring. Now, most people today would hardly think of boredom as being a mark of success or a blessing. In fact, Instead, it's often regarded as a curse, something to fear, something to run away from, and primarily something to eradicate. Now, in reality, of course, it's pretty strange that anyone in our 21st century Western culture could be bored. I mean, we see the thousands of diversions and distractions that are endlessly available to us at the push of a button, at the click of a mouse, 
and we see the diversions and distractions that hammer at our sense doors from morning till night, shouting, you know, pay attention to me, partake of me. Yet, we see, unlike gas, and I really don't believe it worked for gas either, that it doesn't really seem to work. Because there's something, it seems like we're almost kind of hardwired to crave novelty. It's not enough that we're, uh, you know, stimulated at our sense doors. There's this craving for novelty, the new experience, the new sight, the new sound, the new taste. And, of course, that moves, that shifts everything into being more and more extreme. You know, more extreme movies, more extreme roller coasters, more extreme food tastes, more extreme obsessions. Now, I think in our resistance to and fear of boredom, we can live our lives in a kind of state of expectation or anticipation or demand, expecting that life should, in every moment, offer us, to some extent, a non-stop series of events and experience to excite us and to stimulate us. And if the events in our lives don't excite and stimulate us, at least they should give us something to do, something to fix, a project to absorb ourselves in, to absorb our time, to give us in many ways, a sense of meaning. I mean, to me, it is truly not amazing at all, and no wonder at all that it can be, especially in the beginning of a retreat, that people can find it so hard just to sit, just to walk, just to breathe, just to listen. And, you know, people talk to me about this, about, you know, how hard that is. So they try to get creative with their breathing. You know, what is it like if I breathe in one nostril and breathe out the other, you know, have a little breath and then a big breath, you know, trying to make the breathing somehow more interesting, more exciting. Or people talk about how ingenious they get with their walking meditation. You know, they could break it down this way or break it down that way or turn it into a dance or a performance. Performance. What about just walking? It's hard. It is hard because on some deep level, it doesn't always feel acceptable to us, this quality of simplicity. And in fact, this quality of simplicity where there's not so much to do, not so much to act on, it can sometimes, I think, look like a sort of black hole in which we fear we may disappear. We may be no one. We may not become anything. I think that we sometimes fear boredom because it evokes this sense of loss, of something being missing. And when you look at agitation, it's really interesting to look at the relationship of agitation, if you experience it at all, restlessness, to look at the relationship of that to the state of mind at the moment. Is there a sense of lack? Is there a sense of there being something missing? And 
think we experience this in many, many way, obvious ways, sometimes I think embarrassing ways on a retreat, you know, if we can't find some new experience or event outwardly, you know, if we've cruised the building, we've cruised the grounds, you know, there's nothing more to see, not much more to do. We get, you know, you, you know, when you find yourself reading the instructions on the tea boxes or the fire extinguishers or, you know, the housekeeping manuals, you know, you can see this endeavor to fill up this kind of empty space. And if we can't do that outwardly, often we find ourselves doing it inwardly with fantasy, with daydreams, with planning, with memories. Notice just how noise and busyness are our most frequent responses to boredom, a sense of something missing. But there, I think there is a simple truth and a simple lesson here, that if we endlessly endeavor to avoid boredom by drowning ourselves in distractedness, we will, in distractions, we will develop the habit of distractedness. And if we find ourselves willing to pause and to stop a little, to be still for a little while, and to truly heed and listen to this mind that can feel so uncomfortable in something missing, if we really willing to look at what that has to teach us, we will in truth develop the habit of wonder, investigation, and attention. And although the word in the English language of boredom is relatively new in our vocabulary, there is another more ancient word, Greek word, that I think really has something to do with it. I'm probably pronouncing this all, all wrong because my classical language is really quite poor. And actually I've had several Greek scholars pronounce this differently to me. But there's this Greek word called acedia, acedia sometimes it's said. And it really came out of the time when the early desert monks and nuns, the early desert fathers and mothers, would leave the busyness of their world and retreat to the desert and dedicate themselves to contemplation, to meditation, to really dedicate their hearts to deepening a spiritual path of wakefulness and freedom. And they identified something that they called the demon of the noontide the noontide demons and they came out with this word to describe the sense of malaise or a discontent that they encountered and they said that sometimes really the sense of malaise or discontent really pointed to a deeper affliction a loss of a sense of meaning a kind of existential meaninglessness, sense of drifting, being somehow insignificant, unimportant. And they also pointed to it as a kind of, that it came from a sort of spiritual indifference, a loss of a spiritual appetite for, or thirst for freedom, a kind of disconnection from wonder, a disconnection from a sense of mystery. And perhaps this kind of spiritual exhaustion 
or the, the sense sometimes of meaninglessness is really as common today as it was for the early desert fathers and mothers. And that word assidic translated is a lack of care. And I think it has much to do with our own experience of boredom. I mean, surely we, we do see that one of the first steps in our practice is really to care for what is uncared for. To care for the sense of loss or sense of disconnection that is, we superficially, I think, describe as boredom. When we see what, really look at what boredom is, we see it's a mental discomfort, isn't it? It's a psychological discomfort. And it's an unease, it's a dis-ease of our hearts. And our practice is actually really to attend to this sense of dis-ease. The discontent is often with ourselves. We say that we are bored with the world, but in truth we are often also bored and discontented with our own minds. It is not an easy thing to know what it really means to be at ease and at home within ourselves. And this is in truth what we learn to do in this practice. We learn to heal the sense of lack. We learn truly what it means to be at home, to be a friend to ourselves. And sometimes when we look beneath these layers of discontent or layers of boredom or numbness, what we really do encounter too is, is often a sense of bewilderment, of not knowing really what it really means to have that sense of completeness, of nothing lacking, a sense of spiritual richness. Mm-hmm. There is a cure for boredom. And it is not more toys or distractions. It is not more busyness or more noise. I think the cure for boredom begins with mindfulness and it ends with insight. First, I think it is very important and essential insight to acknowledge that boredom is a state of mind. It's not a description of life. It's not a description of the world. It's not a description of the moment. It is a description of the state of our mind. And it is a painful state of mind. It is so hard to be close to. And so we often get very impulsive when there is that state of mind present. We think that boredom, or we're convinced, we think that boredom says something about our life, about the kind of experience we're having or the kind of experience we're not having. I think it's more true to say that boredom says something about our loss of connectedness, our loss of sensitivity and wonder. You know, the third foundation of mindfulness is to contemplate the mind as the mind to contemplate mental states as mental states. And think of the countless mental states you have in a single day. Agitation, calmness, dullness, 
alertness, contractedness, spaciousness? Why would we ever believe or assume that boredom is the one mental state we should never have? Or the one mental state that is somehow exempt from mindfulness? And I think it is interesting to really look at what it is about boredom that is so unacceptable to us. My own sense is that boredom is a mental state. It carries with it certain messages and certain belief systems. In boredom, when we're bored, we actually tend to believe that everything's kind of a waste of time and meaningless. In our experience, what we really see when we're very present, when we're very awake, nothing feels like a waste of time. When we're bored, we perceive what we perceive as a kind of sameness. Things feel stuck. They feel static. When we're alert and when we're awake, we see that nothing remains static or the same for a single moment. Boredom, in a way, tells us that this moment and everything in it is somehow undeserving of our attention. Mindfulness teaches us that every moment and everything in it is worthy of equal respect. Boredom tells us this moment is uninteresting, it's dull, that nothing is happening. Mindfulness and sensitivity carries with it qualities of interest and curiosity. And we really see that this perception that nothing is happening, I mean, you know, people say this all the time in practice, nothing's happening. <coughs> nothing's happening. It's a mistaken perception. In truth, of course, life is always happening, inviting us to be a participant, inviting us to be present. We tend to believe that boredom is caused by outside events or the lack of them. And so we're always chasing events. Remember a couple of years ago, you know, we were, Rob and I were teaching in Holland, and uh, Holland, amazingly, has a Buddhist television station. But anyway, they came along to make a documentary about a retreat, and I knew it was a mistake before they even arrived. You know, but after, uh, you know, just a few hours of filming. <laughs> you imagine somebody here filming you today. <laughs> They looked at us and they said, this is not very sexy, is it? <laughs> we said, you're, you're right, this is not very sexy. They said, does it get any better? <laughs> and actually they looked really amazed. I said, actually, it doesn't get any better than this. You know, this is as good as it gets. I was so excited when Rob got up to sort of demonstrate walking meditation. <laughs> Something was finally happening. <laughs> Awareness actually teaches us that joy and sorrow are not really in the events of this world, but that joy and sorrow live in our own hearts. And this path, this path that we're on, is really not a path of pursuing new exciting, exhilarating, transcendent meditation experiences. At this point, half of you may leave the retreat. 
This path is really about finding wisdom, and it's about finding compassion, and it's about really deepening our capacity to open to life as it is. In truth, this path is dedicated to wakefulness and freedom of heart. But it's also dedicated to awakening our capacity to be delighted. Our capacity for wonder. And in that, simplicity delights us moment to moment. Isaac Newton, he once wrote, he says, I do not know what I am, may appear to the, wor- in the, to the world, but to myself I seem to have only been like a boy, playing on the seashore and diverting myself now and then, finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than the ordinary, whilst the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. I think if we can acknowledge boredom as a state of mind and we learn to relax into it, although I would caution you not to relax too much into it, if you'll probably fall asleep. But if we can learn to relax into it, not to think of it as something wrong, but to be interested in what boredom has to teach us and to know it well, and I can promise you, you will have the opportunity to practice this. There's a Zen saying that says, if you are bored with something you're doing, do it for another five minutes. If you're still bored, do it for another ten. If you're still bored, do it for an hour. Stay with it until you are awake. There is a very simple lesson that we learn in this practice. The more mindful we are, the less bored we are. The less mindful we are, the more bored we are. And one of the understandings that arises out of our willingness to be with boredom, to be interested in it, is that boredom teaches us something about our reliance and dependence upon sensations, events, external stimuli in order for us to feel awake and alive and connected. We can believe that our hearts can only be stirred and be touched, that our mind can only really be present and awake through the medium of sensory input. We believe and can believe that our wakefulness and very vitality is dependent and contingent upon conditions. And that without that excitement, without that sensory excitement, we feel depleted, we feel dull, we feel disconnected. And this is often actually what we describe as boredom. This is actually a terrible belief system. And I think it's a terrible dependency. It, it leads us to become beggars at the sense stores, craving and pursuing the more novel experience and sight and event and emotion, and I think to the detriment of our planet and to the detriment of our own hearts. 
It is so easy to see this on a microcosmic level here, that the more discontented we are, the more we will find ourselves prowling, prowling with our sense doors, looking for something to stimulate us, to excite us. To me, I think, you know, in, in, in Buddhist teaching, you know, they speak about the different kinds of cravings and clinging, you know, the craving for sense pleasures, you know, the craving to become something, the craving to get rid of something. But I would actually, in our culture, add another one, something else to that list, because I feel in our culture one of the greatest, actually, illnesses is the addiction to intensity. The addiction to intensity. To intensity through the pleasant or intensity even through the unpleasant in order for us to make us feel awake and alive. I remember years ago, you know, sitting across from someone on, uh, a young woman on, the, on a train, you know, who had, uh, you know, so many multiple piercings everywhere. You know, I have nothing against piercing, please. It's not a judgment call. But I, I did find myself rather fascinated, and I asked her, you know, what it was like, actually, to have so much piercing, and what made her want to do that. And I said, doesn't it hurt? And she said, yes, it hurts, but it makes me feel so alive. I think the difficulty of the addiction to intensity is the suffering of it is obvious. And intensity is actually not hard to find. You know, we can all find intensity, create intensity. But then I think it's really important to look at what impact that addiction to intensity can really have upon our hearts and our minds and our lives. And we may even get a feeling that this sensory overload has something to do with actually reaching that point where we can find it really difficult to be touched by almost anything at all. You know that T-shirt that says, been there, done that? You know, what is it then left that can really touch us? What is there left that can truly move us? And I think sometimes one of the difficulties you can experience in the beginning of a retreat in the first days has something to do with a kind of withdrawal symptoms. <laughs> You know, I think the first day or two of a retreat is like withdrawal symptoms. I think of the, the hindrances as kind of withdrawal symptoms, you know. And, and it's born because that kind of craving, that sort of sensory input is not being satisfied. So what do we do with that? We, want to, we find ourselves wanting to run away from the painfulness of that sense of lack. But if we stay patient, you know, I think if we can really stay patient with some of those withdrawal symptoms, we may see that it's the painfulness really of beginning to wake up, beginning to discover a, great, a, a greater sense of tremendous ease and simplicity, awakening our capacity for sensitivity, reawakening our capacity to be delighted and to find enough in each moment. And the discovery of that kind of peace within ourselves, in truth, is a way of reclaiming our hearts. It's 
way of reclaiming our hearts. If we truly believe that our aliveness and our wakefulness relies upon ever more sensory input and experience, then we become like hungry ghosts in the world, don't we? You know, in the Tibetan tradition, you know, they use a lot of that imagery, and one of the images that's often used in the Tibetan tradition is this image of a hungry ghost, this realm of hungry ghosts, you know, these beings who have these enormous bellies and these enormous appetites and these tiny little throats. You know, so the, the impossibility of ever being satisfied, the impossibility of ever finding enough, But when we become hungry ghosts, in a way, we make this unreliable, changing, unpredictable world the gatekeeper of our happiness and our freedom. We actually become a kind of hostage to the world of events and experience. And this, in truth, is something we learn to let go of. This is part of being free. This is really part of being free within our own hearts and minds is to be not hostage to anything. One of the lines that is repeated again and again in the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse from which this teaching comes, is learning to abide independent, not governed by anything. To know that freedom of heart where nothing has claim to our, to our hearts. Kabir, I think he, a Sufi poet, he says this so wonderfully. He says, I, I said to this wanting creature inside of me, what is this river you want to cross? There are no, no travelers on the river and no road. Do you see anyone moving about on the bank or resting? There is no river at all and no boat and no boatman. There is no tow rope either and no one to pull it. There is no ground, no sky, no time, no bank, no ford. Throw away the thought of imaginary things. Be strong and enter into your own body. There you have a solid place for your feet. Think about it carefully. Don't go off somewhere else. Do you believe there is any place that will make the heart less thirsty? In that great absence, you will find nothing. Throw away the thoughts of imaginary things and stand firm in that which you are. I think another understanding, another very important insight that boredom offers to us is to really begin to notice when boredom arises. Really begin to notice the ground from which boredom arises. Notice that you're very rarely bored when there is an outpouring of pleasant sensations or events or sounds or sights, then you feel really awake and connected and energized, don't you? I mean, if we played concerts up here or, you know, we had whirling dervishes or something, you know, you'd be, oh, you know, so awake, I'm so, so alert, I'm so present. 
It gives us something to engage with, even though that wakefulness may last for a very short time. You know, something I, I read recently, which I find so sad, you know, is that recently when Bhutan and Ladakh opened their, their, ter- their, their borders so that more Western tourists could come in, you know, and many people can't go there with the intention to engage with these really ancient cultures and their spiritual traditions. But the Bhutanese and the Ladakhi soon discovered that Westerners have very short attention spans. So they gave the instructions to shorten the sacred dances because of Westerners' low tolerance levels for boredom. I mean, we're also very rarely bored if, if in our minds are our emotions or thoughts that are really kind of engaging and really pleasant. You know, if you've got some really enticing fantasy going on, you know, or some amazing new venture you're daydreaming about, daydreaming about or some really, you know, if you're in love or fascinated with someone, are you bored? Never. Not for a moment. Because the pleasant seems then to provide that sense of wakefulness. It gives us a sense of direction. gives us something to do and it gives us someone to be. We're also very rarely bored in the midst of um, quite deeply unpleasant or painful experiences. Have you ever been bored in the midst of having a root canal? Never. You know, you broke your arm. You're bored for a moment. If there, even if there's some strong emotion of anger or jealousy or fear, painful as it may be, we're very rarely bored. We're not bored here when our back is in agony or we meet some difficult mental state or obsessive thinking. We're certainly not bored in our lives in those moments when our worlds crumble and fall apart when we face loss and uncertainty or failure. Again, some of the, these are sometimes the most deeply wakeful moments in our life. They're wakeful because of the pain, but they can also be wakeful because they provide us, they, they do bring a sense of something to do, sometimes something to solve or fix, to care for. So where does boredom arise? It often, most often, in the face of experience and events and sensory impressions, that are neither pleasant nor unpleasant, those that we call more neutral. This is the second foundation of mindfulness, to contemplate feeling as feeling, to contemplate the pleasant as the pleasant, to know the unpleasant as the unpleasant, and to know the neutral as the neutral. To find the willingness to be equally near to them all. This is the birthplace of equanimity. It's the birthplace of balance. That willingness to be equally near. The pleasant, the unpleasant, and the neutral. Now actually, we tend not to notice the neutral, do we? And yet there's so much in life. Look around this room. So much in this room... It's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Our thoughts, sensations, sounds, many of them are quite neutral. And I feel that this is actually one of the most enlightened places to practice. 
Because if we can actually rest within the neutral, we don't jump into those places of craving and aversion. We don't jump into those mind states of boredom. And actually, if you take away the aversion and the resistance to the neutral, it's sometimes remarkable. It gives you a real taste of peace, a real taste of calm. And I know this sounds really weird. We actually don't like the neutral. It's often the place where we flounder, we get numb, we don't know what to do because we think we always have to be doing something. And because we don't know what to do with the neutral, we jump into craving, we think something's missing, something's wrong, nothing's happening, so I'll try and make something happen. I'll try and find something. The neutral often feels like a kind of small death. And I think in many ways the neutral is a kind of small death of self. But what is really revealed in the neutral is how much our sense of self is an event that arises in relationship to other events. You know, so there's a pleasant sensation, I'm the enjoyer, there's pain, I'm the sufferer, you know, there's thoughts, I'm the thinker, and we really see how much these eventing of self and the events of the world are rising and passing together. Now, the neutral doesn't feel like an event, does it? It feels like the absence of an event. And that's why it's so hard for us. And yet if we can stay there, there is something really remarkable that can happen. One thing that can happen is boredom. The other thing that can happen is the discovery of this very, very deep sense of ease and peace. And I really encourage you to practice in the neutral zone. You know, practice in the neutral zone without wanting anything from it. Of course we practice with the pleasant. We appreciate it. We enjoy it. We delight in it. Of course we practice with the unpleasant. We learn to find balance. We learn to let go of aversion and resistance. But we also practice with the neutral. Learning to let go of that impulse that something always has to be happening, I always need to be doing something, I always need to be someone making something happen. Rest within nothing happening. You can discover this remarkable liberation of the heart that is not governed by events. You can discover this remarkable freedom of heart where there's a letting go of all those impulses of craving and aversion. You can discover the eventlessness of mindfulness. And I hope that you do discover that during this retreat. To really come back underneath the layers of the mental states, underneath the layers of all these mental states you experience today, you know, boredom, discontent, restlessness, dullness, they are states of mind. They are impermanent. They do, go, they, ca they can be uprooted. They are not something to fix. They are something to understand. And boredom is one of those mental states that offers that fertile ground for really understanding, really seeing how much the suffering of selfing, 
the suffering of this sense of, you know, the contractedness of this sense of self, how much it is bound to events, how much we can step out of that contractedness, truly step out of that contractedness. Albert Einstein, he once wrote, the most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious. It is the source of all true art and all science. One to whom this emotion is a stranger who can no longer pause to wonder and stand wrapped in awe is already as good as dead. Their eyes are closed. This is really what mindfulness is actually inviting us to do, to stand and pause in wonder, to stand wrapped in awe, to learn to be present with all things, not to run in endless circles of avoidance and pursuit, but to really awaken our capacity for delight, awaken our capacity to delight in simplicity, and to discover really that great ease and peace of heart, which is freedom, the freedom of our own hearts. We take just a moment to quietly together and then we'll have a walking period. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.